From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Anne Mossop. My name is Julia Enders. I'm an author and physician from Germany. And when I was little, I wanted to be a lawyer. But I think that was only because I watched Ellie McBeal sometimes. <laughs> Microbiologist Julia Enders is seriously into guts. So into guts, in fact, that she's been the catalyst for a global movement to encourage people to understand their insides and to not be afraid of talking about them. Her obsession started at 17 when she developed a skin condition, a sore on her leg that wouldn't go away. Researching this condition made her become fascinated by the workings of the body. Her condition was the result of an autoimmune problem, and since the gut accounts for two-thirds of our immune system, her sore was cleared up by with dietary changes. Her book, Gut, The Inside Story of Our Body's Most Underrated Organ, was published in 2015. It has since sold well over one million copies in her native Germany and been published in over 30 different languages. So Julia, when you were growing up, your parents worked in the arts. Your mother was a documentary maker, your father a musician. Where did your interest in science come from? Interestingly, I never had really limits or borders from arts to science. I never felt like there were such things as, you know, a wall in between them. A big part of that comes from my grandma, which she enjoyed so many different intellectual things and she would like never draw a line anywhere. So it was my mother, but like my, my, my grandma always like kept saying, you don't like have to have a serious face or, you know, put anything into boxes, just like dig into it and enjoy. So I never drew a line. I just thought science was interesting. If we go back to that incident that sparked an interest in medicine, when you were 17, you had this mysterious skin condition. Now, Lots of us will consult Dr. Google if we see something going wrong. But it sounds like you went about this very seriously. What did you do? It shocked me a little that I knew so little about my body. I thought, well, I'm stuck with it for like 70 years. It'll be around for a while. So why don't I know anything about it? Um, so I really sat down, like I sat down in libraries, just sat down and read books like for hours sometimes. And I realized soon that I can do this for such a long time, even when I feel bad or something. And um, I think it's maybe a good idea to go into this area if we can pull it off, you know, to keep keep reading and still like being so enthusiastic about it. And you also went, you didn't just read, you did some experimentation on yourself. I yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I wouldn't say like with the knowledge I have now, it was like not always a good idea. But yeah, I didn't really harm myself too bad. Like some experiments I did were a bit weird. Maybe like I sometimes like once I overdosed on zinc and I felt like my smelling became really good after a while so that I could sometimes like say, ah, that's, that's like a dog shit somewhere. <laughs> my friends would be like, no. And then we'd walk like further, further. And then it was there. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> so when you were doing something like that, were you, you know, treating yourself as a patient, taking notes, recording things very carefully in that kind of experimental way? In a way, like I would like note down all the things I would experience or if it would help me or not. But then again, sometimes it was very unscientifically as like not to know some of the risks that I do know now or also just mixing different things. Uh, in the beginning, I didn't really know what changed my skin for the better because I did so many things at once. So after a while, you know, I figured, yeah, it was not so scientifically, I'd say. Well, I think you're going in an excellent tradition. You know, two Australians won the Nobel Prize for mm. experimenting on themselves. <laughs> in 2012, as a student, you entered the Berlin Science Slam and did a 10-minute illustrated presentation about the gut. 
That presentation has now been viewed over a million times on YouTube and it led to you being offered a book contract. When you were putting that together, did you think this is something that people are going to be really interested in? Yeah, I felt like it has to be put out there. Um, a friend of mine sent me a link to one of those science slams and she said, well, you keep talking about the gut. Maybe that's a good outlet for you. <laughs> I don't know if she was tired of me talking about it, but she wanted you to find a larger audience, <laughs> yeah, like channel it to other people, maybe now. <laughs> no, uh, but yeah, I just felt like oftentimes when I read research and science, I just always like had this thought coming over and over again, being like, why don't people know this? It's so simple. If we like break it down, we could like, it's even possible to explain it in a very correct scientific way and break it down. So it would be so helpful to so many people. Why don't we know it? And then you, you turn on the television and you see like somebody talking about, oh, look at this celebrity broke up or this butt or something. And I do enjoy those like light news too sometimes. But then again, I thought like, why aren't there things like this on the news so people can like live better with their body, incorporate better with their bodies, just because a little piece of information would help them so much with it. So I really felt the need to put it out there. And this really drove me through this whole experience. I think it's one of those very interesting things that obviously comes through in your book is that tone that you're fascinated. You were surprised when you found out some of these things. And if somebody who's already working as a researcher in this area is surprised, how much more surprised and interested are going to be people who really haven't thought about it? Well, it no. can be dangerous, though. I have to say this is really where my sister comes in, because especially in the area of bacteria and microbiome, I get so overexcited about little things. And this is why this is a big part of the book. Uh, I, I just get so excited. And then my sister would say, like, so um, I don't think people care about that detail. <laughs> so uh, sometimes it's really necessary. And even if I, I mean, and I've just been in this field for a few years and then somebody researching in this for a long time, if they get really excited, it's probably rather dangerous to like do this without consulting somebody that's honest to you. Time for some toilet talk because obviously this has been one of the most shared parts of the book. Even those of us who didn't read Gut for, you know, until a couple of years after it came out would have seen things like little stools for putting your feet on when you go to the toilet popping up in shops. A whole lot of conversation about things that you think, where is that coming from? In the book, you write about your flatmate coming in, wandering into the kitchen one day and asking you, Julia, you study medicine. How does pooing work? Now, people listening might not want to admit it, but this is a question that it, it affects all of us and they probably do want to hear the answer. So can you tell us what you told your flatmate? Yeah, the thing is, I didn't know. And I studied medicine and I had been through the whole gastro part. So I didn't know when he asked me. And so I went up to my room and I had to like actually take three different books to find out something about this. And when I like read it, I thought, wow, this is so much, this is so much better than I thought it would be. It's not even complex, but it's also very clean. As humans, we're actually one of the animals on this planet that do this in a very clean matter and very smart matter. And I think what surprised me at first was I didn't know anything about the second sphincter. I knew we had an outer one and so does everybody. You can like control it. You kind of know what's going on there. But then there's an inner one also. I didn't know that. And so they're like colleagues working together, actually representing very interesting parts 
parts of our bodily personality, I'd even say. Like the one, the inner one opens sort of like in a reflex and that's like the rest of digestion. He lets do a little, a tiny bit uh, for testing and then sensory cells will tell you if this is gas or solid. And then they will tell the brain. And this is the moment when you realize, oh, I have to go to the loo or something. And then um, your brain can actually do what it is meant to do. It's like, okay, adapting to the surroundings. Who would I bother? Would it be okay? Mm. Um, and then it can work together with the outer sphincter. So the inner one really is just connected to our insides, to our bowels, really just wanting to know what's good for myself, what's good for my inner world. And the outer one then sort of like compromises with the outer world saying, what is okay to do for me not to like harm or like disturb anybody and I really like this balance that they're both like working on uh, and really like seeing this as a compromise between yourself and the outer world and the fact that there are these organs that we don't consider to be sentient they, we think of as just parts of the body communicating with each other effectively that this very complex series of senses and so on that they they talk to each other effectively which is really really interesting everyone listening to this in australia and in the western world probably sits down on a toilet seat to do their business and in the book you basically say if we're sitting down we're doing it wrong why <laughs> well, the thing is that there's also another muscle going around the end of the colon that pulls back a little like a lasso, like a cowboy's lasso. And this creates um, a sort of like a curve. So when we go off the highway, for example, a curve will slow us down, right? And this is what happens with this curve also. So we have to use more pressure. And this will actually um, be one of the tributing factors to things like hemorrhoids or diverticulosis, things like this. Um, so we can take off a little pressure by loosening this muscle and we do so by having a squat like position or yeah, just like a squat squatting position. And um, I think it would be a bit too much to ask for to have people like stand up on the toilet to achieve this. It's very easy to just like put a little stool in front of the toilet. And like ever since I told this, um, people have like taught me so many funny stories about like going to a friend and then seeing a tiny stool in their bathroom and coming out of the bathroom being like, oh, so you read it too. <laughs> I think it's an, an epidemic of small bathroom furniture sweeping the world. You write in the book that the more you know about the gut, the more beautiful it appears. While burping or breaking wind might sound a bit gross, you say, the movements involved are as delicate and complex as those of a ballerina. Can you tell us about where you see this beauty? Because I think it's part of showing people your way of seeing these things, which is very different to what we normally think of. I think it's uh, very, like, it becomes more and more easy as you dive into it. Like, at first, when you look at it, the gastrointestinal tract, looks so funny. Like, the stomach, why is it cricket? It's just like, why, why is it so cricket? Or then all these, like, sausage-shaped appearances from the small intestine. You're just like, ugh, okay. But then when you go closer and closer, it gets, like, more delicate, and you actually find out why. For example, with the stomach being cricket like this, it can separate the liquid foods or liquid strings from the solid foods that would fall down down to the large side of it and the liquids can like go along the smaller side of it so it starts to like make sense and once I think things make sense in your head they become a way of more beautiful at least that's the case for me and then watching um, an esophagus swallow for example in like contrast movies it's very beautiful it's it has a very harmonic way of moving and I really 
very much enjoy. I would even encourage people to like look this up on YouTube because it's pretty and we don't see it just because there's skin in front of it. How annoying. Like sometimes I would like imagine it in my head and would think like how sad we don't see what's all being done for us and we don't even feel it after like a few centimeters of throat. There's so much movement. It's actually very harmonic and pretty because no nerves or perceptions from the outside world are disturbing it. It's not too stressful. Then everything just moves very easy and a flow like yes and the the beauty of the fact that none of it is accidental that that it is designed uh, like it is to be in order to function in a particular way and even seeing like characteristics in it you, when you look at the small intestine when the food's just being delivered there from the stomach it gets to work it like needs through it and always like pushes forward to like get this job done and then the large intestine is more like oh what do we got it's like really slow. It takes so many hours because this is where like some of the really hard to digest or to absorb minerals will be taken up. So sometimes it will not always like forward a project to the exit. It will like stop and just like wait and sit there and then it will like take it back a little bit and then put it like forward again. So you're like, oh, they work so differently because they have different And tasks. they have character and personality yeah, in I a would way say that so. you don't imagine. Maybe that's my perspective, but I feel like they do. Well, I think what, what's, what's interesting about why your book has found struck such a chord with audiences is because it's, it's telling a story and it's showing us these things in a different way and giving them personality. And I think that's what makes it so readable. One of something that emerges in your book is the relatively new awareness of the connection between the gut and the brain. And that you write that science is now learning that what humans have known for a long time, that our gut feeling, you know, what we describe in fact linguistically as our gut feeling is in, responsible in no small measure for how we feel. How does the gut influence the brain and our moods more generally? Yeah, for many people, this sounds a bit weird at first. But when you think about it, it starts to become very logic, I think, because the brain is very isolated. It's in that bony skull. There's a thick skin around it that will filter every drop of blood that gets into it. And um, it needs information to know how the whole body is doing. And, of course, it's getting them also from eyes and ears and nose. Uh, receptors from the skin feeling but then that's just a really small fraction of what we're feeling because the biggest surface area to our outer world is really the gut by far and it has all those receptors like taking information from what kinds of hormones are in our blood how two-thirds of our immune system and their immune cells what they're doing what they're up to if they're sending alarming signals and then also things like the gut bacteria like up to two kilograms um, of tiny beings that produce all kinds of things, like just the information, what are they producing? How are they kind of like doing? Are they alarmed about something or, you know, what are they producing out of the food? How well is the, the status of our nutrients? So very elementary information that the brain needs to put together a feeling of how we're doing. And then when you come across research, for example, Bud Craig, for 20 years, he just followed different nerves and where they go in the brain. And he actually showed a new hypothesis of a little map that's being created in an area of the brain that's called the insula. So information from the gut can go there, other information as well. And then we put together a picture like my hands are cold, I'm well nurtured, my hormones are calm or something. And that will put together like a tiny picture. And even like after a few seconds, there will be a new picture creating sort of like a movie of how I feel about myself. 
and um, how I'm doing at that moment. And the gut being a part of this is just logical. What we're about to find out now is how big is that part. What is the research being done to show us how big this part is? Well, we already, in earlier years, we already saw things like constipation or inflammatory bowel disease being closely associated with depression or anxiety. Uh, even when you compare them to other chronic diseases that aren't so much fun either. So this kind of like hinted towards it really playing a big part or an important role, let's say it like that. And now when we come more into the age of microbiome and the big bubble that's now uh, starting to form, like the human genome once was, um, we're getting into this question of how do different microbes influence our mood or also, how can we improve our mood and sometimes even our ability to learn our cognitive um, skills through different bacteria? So we're starting this now. And actually, in the last few years, we saw more and more human trials. Um, so I was interested in that and I actually um, read upon those things uh, more and more in the last month. And I think it's interesting because the picture that comes together for now, which isn't what it probably will be in 10 or five years but for now we see i think i like that the picture looks very realistic it's not that when humans take certain good bacteria their mood changes in a second it's not like a fast mood swing it's like over a course of time when you repeatedly take them three or four weeks then things start to like slowly be a little different or slowly start to change a little and i think i like this picture and sometimes we had like subjective measures that were up to like 10 15 percent in terms of like um, mood uh, aggressiveness or ruminative thinking um, or yeah things like subjective level of stress so you can see that it's a factor and and i think we're getting closer to um, seeing that and doing more fine-tuning research in that area So we've talked a bit about bacteria, about the microbiome, but one of the things that is extraordinary in the book is how fascinating that discussion is. If you think about the way our culture thinks about bacteria, most of the time because of the association with disease, if you look at look at advertisements or anything with bacteria is depicted as a death by microbes trying to come in and ruin your kitchen or, you know, we don't think of bacteria as something positive and healthy in general. But in your book, you show a really different view, not just trying to show us how much we don't know about bacteria, what fascinating things there are to find out, but also showing bacteria in a very positive role. So tell us what are the most fantastic things about bacteria that you found out in this process? Well, the first thing that I would like to like just state before that is that it's very understandable in logic that we think that way about bacteria because we had to. We were taught that they could, can cause tuberculosis and other deadly disease. Um, so it's natural for us to be careful about those things, but we just didn't have all the information. We're getting there now, and we see that 95% of bacteria are not harming us in any way. They're really doing many things for us, or they just don't do anything at all, but like they're not like harming us really. And it's important to look after the dangerous ones. I would say for in terms of like cleanliness, it's really not so much about putting all your energy in and trying to avoid the bad. That's what I learned from reading all kinds of different research papers, especially about cleanliness in the gut, but maybe also in other areas. Like when you see, when you look at the gut, it's not bad to have a few bad bacteria. It's really that you have few of them and how much of the good you have, what makes it a clean gut. So a few salmonella in your sink won't even like make you sick. 
they will just train your immune system. It's like sightseeing. That's what I like to compare it to. Keeping your bacteria fit. Yeah. And it's like having your body has to know some of the bad guys so it can recognize them fast. That's what immunization is all about. But like the gut really is, is a, an organ that will do this naturally if it gets to know bad microbes. And it have, if it has enough good microbes, they will take up the space and protect you from bad ones uh, growing into large numbers. So that's one thing they do. They also uh, modify up to uh, 15,000, 20,000 genes. They can influence them in a way. And for example, the integrity of our intestinal barrier positively influenced by good microbes. So they will make the barrier for also like poisonous things uh, stronger. And um, then we see them influencing our metabolism with um, small things like fatty acids they produce. So when you eat things that feed your microbes well, you, for example, with the difference between white bread or like full uh, gr whole grain bread, uh, sometimes chemically it's a bit hard to understand because both is just sugar, just put in different chains really. But then when you look at what happens with the microbes, you see, ah, oh, that, that might be one thing why it's actually really healthier. I, I like this aspect because it explains you something that people just like put towards your face, like eat whole grain, bum, that's it. But like explain me why really. So you see that the sugar is taken up in the very beginning of the small intestine, goes into the blood and then shroop, there's this blood arise. And then when you have the whole grain, it's harder to uncoil all these chains. So it will get to the large intestine and then the bacteria will like make all kinds of like little fatty acids that kind of function like a balm also. And that also make the energy delivered to your blood like be a very slow, smooth rise and then your metabolism can work with it more steadily. In a way, our cultures have always known that, you know, there were good bacteria and bad bacteria without, without even thinking about it in that way, of course. And you see it in the different fermented foods, don't you, that we are now finding out are quite healthy to eat. Was that something that you found interesting to discover? Yeah, I like the idea that every culture on this planet has some fermented food typical for them. Like in Korea, kimchi. In Germany, we have the sauerkraut. And in Africa, we have like uh, very different fermented corn dishes, for example. Or also in Japan, there's so much fermented, even still today is. I really like this aspect that it was really a big part of our culture. And even when you look at our evolution, the two things that really fueled us were fermenting and cooking. So with the one, we could have uh, f like nutrients faster and accessible, and, and the other one, or also both of them, making food far more safe for us. And um, preserving it, yeah. enabling us and to And then when you nutrients. look at fermenting, it's really the safest way of um, preserving food, even today, like with cans or something when you do that at home, or heat-resistant bacteria could still survive and even kill people. Mm. And with fermenting, I think not, no really any case of disease have ever been reported with fermented foods because the acid, if you do it right, the acid will just like be so hostile, like not friendly. <laughs> hostile to, bac yes. to hostile bad to bacteria. Usually yes. the bad bacteria don't get along with it. And that's also what happens in our body. Like people who come, who like are afraid of many bacteria, you have to think about the bacteria defending their space, producing antimicrobial substances. So if you have a good diversity of bacteria on you, they will like form a, a film of substances that are actually like antibiotics, di but directed very specifically at other bacteria than themselves. So uh, it's it's a very interesting way of looking at selecting the positive, giving more power to the good. And I really like this aspect a lot. It's a big part of real cleanliness. It's not only, you know, avoiding the bad, but like harvesting and 
feeding the good to make it more powerful. And these are certainly ideas that are becoming much more commonly understood. The whole interest in probiotics and prebiotics and a greater carefulness around the use of antibiotics is certainly something that you see. Are you worried about people taking a too simplistic view of that? You know, you see those kind of claims on various kinds of herbal preparations or other things about this will, you know, boost your immune, this is good for your bacteria, this is probiotic. Yeah, I mean, I'm not worried about probiotic intake too much because we've seen in research that there's not really harm or side effects other than maybe you being very sick or immune deficient. It's really nothing that can harm you too badly. But I think what I'm worried about is um, having the wrong perspective, which is like the body is a stupid piece of meat and I have to manipulate it to keep healthy. The body is very smart and also underestimating the good bacteria that are already on you and in you, thinking you have to like buy them to be the, your friends. <laughs> like you already have so many good bacteria and you see this by fermenting food at home. It's so simple. Just put like a little salt, cut it and that's it. And because there already are good bacteria and by feeding them or putting them in the right climate, they they grow and they become, they outnumber the bed. And that's how the fermented food is produced. And that's the same way we should think about our body. Our gut already has very good probiotic bacteria. So if there's not a certain specific condition that some strains maybe have proven to be very efficient and so you maybe want to give them a shot at like trying to help you, then I think probiotics like in certain um, areas can be good and useful and hopefully with more research even more effective but also keep in mind that you already have all those good bacteria and that it's really much about fostering them and that if you understand your body and respect it it will do most of the work for yeah. you and not it's not stupid you don't have to swallow all the time no, we heard different about those things. two super intelligent sphincters for starters <laughs> for example or even like appetite i like the subject of appetite so much because people think their appetite is stupid because they crave chocolate or chips or fries or whatever when you really look into it if you understand it better you see that the appetite really is very smart and for example with crispy things when you eat them the crispiness of them it's what for thousands of years our body associated with fresh cells if a plant was very fresh and not as had been lying around on the floor for too long on the ground then it would like break the cells when you bite and it, they would have like a crispy feeling to it so that's what our body trusts and other things that were never in abundance, like you know salt sugar so it's not being stupid it's just actually when you know the things that the food industry uses to trick it and then you know whether when the appetite comes you can like sort this a little bit that i want celery yeah. i don't want chips no not not even that but like thinking okay i want this because of uh, the mechanisms in my body and the food industry tricking them but then all the things that grow on this planet or fermented foods or like everything that's not being used by a company to like trick me i'm not saying this is a mean thing i mean they want us to have positive feelings i guess and you know it's cravings so, well, the, the, but like, in a sense that they might, they're manipulating some yeah, of that knowledge. Yeah, they are. Sometimes, not even to, consciously, but no. it's happening. So I'm not saying no, those are bad people. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying like it happens and this is the way it happens. And then I think when you know this and you put it aside and you listen to all the other cravings that you also have for just natural things, they are really smart. And even like some, I think the best example is pregnancy sometimes when I saw my sister craving things at different stages of the pregnancy that just had exactly the nutrients you should be taking at that time. So I, we were both like, 
so impressed by this and then when you go to your everyday life and you like listen a little bit more closely many of those appetites will come up and you will actually realize they're probably pretty smart also was it like going back to university after you had released the book? The book received a huge reception in Germany. You're going back to life as a student. Well, what did your teachers think about having somebody in their classes who had achieved this amazing feat of getting people to pay attention to hitherto unconsidered parts of their bodies? Well, the good thing is that people usually don't recognize me, although in Germany I am on the cover of the book, but I'm much smaller than they think apparently. I think maybe TV kind of makes you look bigger. So I don't know. But like many people would not recognize me. Some One doctor, even he asked me what field I wanted to go into. I said gastroenterology. And he said, oh, you should really check out this book by the student she writes about. And I was like, yeah, thanks. So it was always like really comfortable for me because I actually had like a normal experience most of the time. And then um, some professors um, asked me by email to like maybe come to their lecture and like talk for 10 minutes. So I was very honored because I actually had expected more of like uh, a rough time because in Germany, I think our like at least the second like in line of our hobbies is criticizing. So I was very prepared for that actually. And it just did not happen. Uh, so I, I guess I was flattered, but also irritated at first. And then I think some of the acquaintances were really nice because I, I realized some people that I earlier would have never had anything to do with, like tiny chic purses, very stylish lipstick, hair, always perfect. Like I would usually look at them and would think like, what should we talk about? I don't know. So they would come up to me and they would be like, so uh, the book, great, my grandma has the worst constipation. And I would be like, wow, we're really talking about this right now. <laughs> and it's just such a human topic to connect and really to like talk about. And I felt uh, far more connected to many people that I would usually think I would have nothing in, com in common with them. Or, yeah, it was just a very human basis of talking to each other. This is one of the things that, that I'm interested in finding out whether it happens. I'm sure it happens to you all the time is people saying to you, talking to you, like in the same way that they do to other doctors. If you find out that you're meeting somebody that they're a doctor, people tell them their latest medical experience. So I'm sure you get a lot of these stories about my grandmother's constipation or my aunt's irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah, and I never get tired of that. You never get People tired of them. like ask me if I do, I never. Sometimes I just don't know the answer and then I might look it up and it will teach me something or I'll know something about it and say, but that's just like, I think, one part of it. So, mm -hmm. so I will just be very open about what I know and what I don't know and I think this helps me so I never feel like a fraud after talking to them. Like I really can tell them this is all the research I read but maybe doctors have like more experience with people, you know, because I'm really on the research side there. Um, well, now maybe I've heard some stories but like the people, the doctors that really work in the hospital for years have all the real accurate um, experience with different And the diagnostic yeah, practice. I just, yeah. I'm just a little nerd that had lots of time to read about everything. So this is where things come together. And then sometimes it's very nice for me to have this exchange with doctors where I tell them, so listen to this research, but did you think about it? Then they're like, ah, you know, That's <laughs> I tried this or, with him yeah. or that. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, yeah, I, I think I try to like be very open and clear about this and, and then it's never really a bad experience. One of the things that is obvious and you've mentioned is your passion for communicating about these things to a really broad audience. Can you see yourself turning out more books in the future? 
I feel like I really had something tickling under my nails. Uh, I don't know if that's an exp- expression you It's use, not, but, but I know what you mean. In German, it was like you had there was something. You in your bonnet yeah. or you had something, something that needed to come out. I, yeah. I, I felt like, uh, yeah, people need to know. And if I don't have this feeling, then I'm perfectly fine with this being my book, my one and only book. And it was a very exciting journey for me to, to go to all these countries and meet so many people and talk about this topic. So I think internally, I'm really fine with it being maybe my last book. If I feel like there's something people need to know now again, like <gasps> they really should know. And if this, you know, sums up to be something I want to put out there, I wouldn't feel like hesitant to do so. But I would like think for the next one or two years, at least, maybe more, I would have to like put training to be a good doctor first. So I don't, yeah. Are you interested in practice research in the longer term? Where do you see yourself? Yeah, the horrible thing is I find everything interesting. <laughs> so I might be really slow because when you do many things at once, you're not fast and becoming good at them. So I feel like I really want to be a good doctor, but I also have ideas for research that I would find really interesting and following. And sometimes communicating research is still something I do at Decent Germany. So I feel like I really like all these three aspects. And if you look into medical professionals really about prevention is one aspect of it, even though in today's medical landscape, it's not so much represented. At least that's what I find in Germany. So I feel like it's actually a, a good and useful thing to do. A very good and useful thing to do. What are those areas of research that you find most exciting at the moment? Where do you see things happening in the next few years that are really going to make a difference to what we know and understand about the gut? Actually, interestingly, this has changed uh, during the last past month. Um, before that, I would have probably said like the link to the mind, like the gut-brain axis or the link to the metabolism. Uh, right now, I find there's another thing that I find interesting, and it is the mucus. I did not look into that too much earlier, but I just, uh, yeah, I read about this more and more in the last few weeks. And it's it's actually very interesting because if you look at, I think you have this expression in the English language also that you say somebody has a thick skin. You know? Yes, yes. And the mucus is the thick skin of the gastrointestinal tract. So if you have a good mucus, um, it will protect you from being too much involved in all that bacterial business. It'll form like a, a comfort zone between you and all the the digestion and all the, the action that's going on in there, kind of like sheltering you. <laughs> and I think a fascinating thing that I did not know is half of the mucus is produced from yourself, from your cells, and they produce half of it. But the other half is also uh, produced by bacteria or consists out of them helping you with it. So uh, this is something I really liked. And as a picture, I would think of it like it's really cold outside and you go out and you put a coat on. When you go out, there's like tiny, cute, like, like nice clean looking doves flying on you and warming you also so the microbes help us with that too and this might be a difference in different people like some people might have less of that protection because of maybe their gut bacteria and i think this is something that i read and i thought oh this is very interesting especially for people with problems in the gut sensibility or with inflammation maybe looking into that more would be interesting but that might just be something that I will discover to be not true in the next few months. But as of now, I think it's a very interesting area. Well, and certainly those broad areas about the gut relation of the gut with the brain, the metabolism are huge areas where, I, you know, I think I can 
can see that you have many exciting things to find out. And maybe also other organs. Like we see more and more of those axes, you know, gut brain axes. We see more of them popping up, like the gut liver axes, for example. Or I would personally be very interested in like the adrenal gland gut axis. Why would you be very interested? Because I feel like the adrenal gland is one of the organs highly underestimated right after the gut, probably, because it produces all the stress hormones. And uh, it's, you you know, you know, in our life now stress is such a big word and sometimes i think associated with diseases that it's not always true to really be a stressful job or something only maybe also other things um triggering the adrenal gland and and having like feelings of exhaustion when your uh, cortisol is too low or too high or i think that the hormones are interesting that the adrenal gland produces and very much uh, in the focus of our time Well, I look forward to reading more about this in the future. (laughs) Thank you so much, Julia Enders, for coming to talk to us at the Opera House. It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Talks and Ideas program. Our show is hosted by me, Anne Mossop, and is produced and edited by Cara Jensen-McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hiaway. We're recorded by Mark Pickles, and our executive producer is Danielle Harvey.